Jagadadhar, Shiva Sadigor, Bhaktivinodiki Vijay. Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopina Shami Kundaradha Kundigiri Govardhana Kija. Vrindavan Dhamma Kija. Tura Dhamma Kija. Abhidrit Mayapur Dhamma Kija. Jagannath Puri Dhamma Kija. Gangadhar Juna Devi Kija. Bhakti Devi Kija. Tulsi Maharani Kija. Samaveta Bhaktivinodiki Kija. Gaur Pramananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Ma Om Vishnu Krishna Sadi Gaur Shmati Bhakti Ranta Swami Shmati Manipuri Shmati Devi Ravana Bhajanam Bhakti Sanam Pasachari Bhajanam. Ande Ham Sri Guru Shmita Parikamalana Shmati. Canto 1, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti. One of Prabhupada's favorite chapters. If I, there are certain chapters of Bhagavatam that Prabhupada and certain uh, chapters of Bhagavatam, you know, that Prabhupada didn't speak on at all. There's no lectures. And then there's others that he spoke on over and over again and referred to over and over again. And this is one of them, text 40. Ime jana pada shridha. Ime jana pada shridha. Sukhavo sadi virudha. Sukhavo sadi virudha. Vanadrina judanvanto. Vanadrina judanvanto. Yedhante tava vikshitai. Ime jana padasvidha. Ime jana padasvidha. Supaksvo sadivirudha. Supaksvo sadivirudha. Vanadrina judanvanto. Vanadrina judanvanto. Yedyante tava vikshitai. Yedyante tava vikshitai. Ime jana padasvidam. Ime jana padasvidam. Supakaushadi virudam. Supakaushadi virudam. Vanadrinadyudanvanto. Vanadrinadyudanvanto. Yedante tava vikshitai. Yedante tava vikshitai. Ime jana padasvidam. Sri 
Translation in purport by Srila Prabhupada. All these cities and villages are flourishing in all respects because the herbs and grains are in abundance. The trees are full of fruits. The rivers are flowing. The hills are full of minerals and the oceans full of wealth. And this is all due to your glancing over them. Purport. Human prosperity flourishes by natural gifts and not by gigantic industrial enterprises. The gigantic industrial enterprises are products of a godless civilization, and they cause the destruction of the noble aims of human life. The more we go on increasing such troublesome industries to squeeze out the vital energy of the human being, the more there will be unrest and dissatisfaction of the people in general, although a few only can live lavishly by exploitation. The natural gifts, such as grains and vegetables, fruits, rivers, the hills of jewels and minerals, and the seas full of pearls, are supplied by the order of the Supreme. And as he desires, material nature produces them in abundance or restricts them at times. The natural law is that the human being may take advantage of these godly gifts by nature and satisfactorily flourish on them without being captivated by the exploitive motive of lording it over material nature. This is a very nice sentence. The natural law is that the human being may take advantage of these godly gifts by nature and satisfactorily flourish on them without being captivated by the exploitive motive of lording it over material nature. What's Prabhupada saying there? So we can use the gifts to live prosperously without being entangled in the wrong mood of exploitation. Any other thoughts for Prabhupada saying? She depends on nature, not on industrial. Depends on nature, not on industrial, which he says more, that was more in the previous sentences. 
simple life. Live simple life. Again, that was, I think, more of a theme. It's a bit desperate and higher uh, reality has just uh, reached to the horizon. Right. Just to a higher reality than just what we see with our eyes. Okay. Any other thoughts? I read here he's saying that it's possible to live a materially opulent life without having an exploitive mentality of lording it over the world. Which often we think it's not possible. We think the only way to give up an exploitive mentality is to live in poverty. And Prabhupada's saying here, the natural law, only the law, the natural law is that the human being may take advantage. And this word take advantage is interesting because generally in English, if, if we say you take advantage of something, we mean you exploit it. It's almost synonymous. If I take advantage of you, I'm exploiting you. That's the, the subtle meaning of the word. The Prabhupada says here, the natural law is that the human being may take advantage of these godly gifts by nature. I use the word gifts. And satisfactorily flourish on them. So, to be satisfied and to flourish. Not only to be satisfied, but to flourish. So, not to have any want and even to have abundance. To, to flourish, you have practically more than what you need. Without being captivated by the exploitive motive of lording it over material nature. So, he's saying it's possible to flourish materially without, as you're saying, becoming contaminated by an exploitive mentality. The more we attempt to exploit material nature according to our whims of enjoyment, the more we shall become entrapped by the reactions of such exploitive attempts. If we have sufficient grains, fruits, vegetables, and herbs, then what is the necessity of running a slaughterhouse and killing poor animals? So now Prabhupada's going to another point. So he's talked about how we don't want to maintain ourselves by industries. Remember what he said about industries? says they squeeze out the vital en energy of the human being. So there's plenty of natural gifts and it's possible to enjoy the natural law, he's saying, is that you can, you can flourish materially without becoming exploited. So now he's, it seems to me he's giving a specific example of how one can be exploited. So if we have sufficient grains, fruits, vegetables, and herbs, then what is the necessity of running a slaughterhouse and killing poor animals? A man need not kill an animal if he has sufficient grains and vegetables to eat. And when Prabhupada speaks on this verse in other places, he also really emphasizes giving up meat-eating. The flow of river waters fertilizes the fields, and there is more than what we need. Now, of course, the flow of river water only fertilizes the fields under two conditions that I know of. One is that you pump the water from the river and irrigate. And the other is, if the river what? Overflows, if the river floods periodically. So the, the rivers generally start in high places, and they're pulling the soil as they travel. Do you know the science of rivers? Anyone know the science of rivers? So when it, it rains... The rains tend to stop at mountains. The clouds tend to stop at mountains. And especially on one side of mountains, you tend to get a lot of rivers. 
because the, the, the mountains stop the clouds. For example, on the, I was recently on Hawaii, and one side of the island is always raining, and one side of the island is dry, because depending on where the wind blows, the clouds stop at the mountains. So that means they're pouring a lot of water in one place, so it creates rivers. And then, you know, the water is pulled down by gravity to the ocean or sometimes to a big lake. And when it's first falling down the mountains, it's falling very fast, and the river is fairly narrow, and it's also fairly deep. So it's usually narrow, deep, and fast, and the water is fairly clear. But because it's flowing very fast, it's pulling soil from the riverbed. It's cutting a deeper and deeper and deeper riverbed, and it's pulling soil from the sides. And it also sometimes changes course, and as it changes course, it pulls soil from various places. And generally, that soil on the mountains is not being farmed. It's very fertile soil. And as it's coming down the mountain, and, and as the river is picking up more and more and more soil, and also tend to, the ground tends to become more and more level as it gets closer to the sea, the river starts slowing down. The weight of the soil makes the river heavier. And the water starts slowing down. And so the river starts getting wider and more shallow. And it also starts getting full of soil. It gets full of silt. So therefore, you see the river becomes darker the further it is from the mountain. And as it slows down, also, the force of the river uh, is, is not as, as, as fast, and therefore the very wide river starts to move more. And therefore the course of rivers, especially far from the mountains, really changes over time. It doesn't have the strength to just push through on a straight path anymore. So it goes to different areas. You know, just like if you're irrigating the, your lawn, you have first sprinklers over here, and then sprinklers over here, and then you don't want them all in one place. So the rivers will move. And sometimes, as, as the, also they don't quite go in a straight path, they, they start curving around. And sometimes the river will create a curve and then move so that a curve gets cut off from the rest of the river. It becomes what's called an oxbow. And sometimes that also forms a lake that becomes separate from the river. That's what happened in the Kalia Lake. And then when the river over, when there's a flood, the rivers over flood and all this soil, first of all, as the rivers move, they're depositing their soil on the various places. So it, it moves, it leaves the fertile soil, it moves again, it leaves the fertile soil. And then when it floods, it's spreading this fertile soil that it's brought down from the mountains over a large area. Now, of course, modern society, this doesn't happen. What do they do in modern society? They try to control the rivers. I don't know what they do here, but in America, we, the Army Corps of Engineers, one of the things they do is control the flow of rivers so that they don't shift and that they rarely, if ever, flood. So they, they're preventing this natural fertilization that the rivers give. And of course, when, as the rivers get very, very slow at the very end of their course before they go into the ocean, they, they become so weak because of all this soil, they can't flow very fast. So as they become very weak near the ocean, what do they start doing? They start spreading out into many, 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 many streams. It can't stay as one big river anymore. And each stream deposits soil, and that forms what's called a... It's that fan of soil by a river, by an ocean, as the river goes into an ocean. It's called delta. It forms a delta. And this delta is, is made up of extremely good soil. And the delta keeps growing. So you find in, in the, all over the world that people traditionally have lived on deltas, but deltas flood a lot. Mm -hmm. 
So like in Bangladesh, many, many people live on the delta of the Ganga. But you know, once a year, practically, they have a severe flood. Now you could say, well, don't floods damage things? But people who live on floodplains, they learn how to live on floodplains. They have houses that are built up on stilts, and many of them are somewhat nomadic. They learn how to move when there's a flood, and the people have done that for thousands of years. And now that we have a society that's where we're assuming there aren't any floods, then when there's a flood, there's a catastrophe. The flow of, riv of river waters fertilizes the fields and there is more than what we need. Minerals are produced in the hills and jewels are in the ocean. If the human civilization has sufficient grains, minerals, jewels, water, milk, etc., then why should it hanker after terrible industrial enterprises at the cost of the labor of some unfortunate men? But all these natural gifts are dependent on the mercy of the Lord. What we need, therefore, is to be obedient to the laws of the Lord and achieve the perfection of human life by devotional service. So Prabhupada's starting off with something material. He's starting off with the, the na natural life, bountiful life. You don't need to have industries. You can depend on nature's gifts without being exploitive. You can be a vegetarian. You can depend on the natural flow of the rivers. And then he says, but really... We're, we're supposed to be dependent on is Krishna. All these things are coming from Krishna. It's not simply that we're interested in organic farming and natural life and simple living. It says all these natural gifts are dependent on the mercy of the Lord. As Prabhupada also said earlier, that nature can produce them in abundance or restrict them. Krishna can, he's, he's in charge of the water faucet. You know? He can turn it on or he can turn it off. What we need, therefore, is to be obedient to the laws of the Lord and achieve the perfection of human life by devotional service. So now Prabhupada is also saying, okay, obedience to the laws of the Lord, but that's not necessarily devotional service, is it? If I'm just obedient. No. no. I mean, that's just the demigods. Their idea is I'm going to obey the laws of the Lord, and that way I'll get prosperity, which is true. They say, and devotional service. Not just that I follow the rules so that I'll enjoy in the world because then you worry about getting back into that exploitive mentality again, isn't it? It becomes a very fine, like Prabhupada says, a razor's edge, a very fine line. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to obey the laws of the Lord and therefore get prosperity. Pretty soon my interest becomes prosperity rather than the laws of the Lord, and then I get back into exploitive, and as soon as I get into exploitive, then I no longer want to live on nature's gifts, and I want to have factories. So therefore, devotional service. Devotional service means that I'm loving Krishna and I take what he gets as, as, as gifts. I'm more interested in the love of Krishna than I am in the gifts. The indications by Quinty Devi are just to the point. She desires... Now, what is her desire? Yesterday we were talking about what's the difference between Buddhism and devotional service. So what's Quinty Devi's desire? She has a desire. It's not that she has no desires. She desires that God's mercy be bestowed upon them so that the natural prosperity be maintained by his grace. And Prabhupada, in, in lecturing on this verse, talks about, uh, she mentions Krishna's glance, that she wants Krishna's glance to be on everything, to make it flourish. Ime janapada shridha supaksvosadivirudha vanadi nadi yananvan all these cities and villages are flourishing in all respects because the herbs and grains are in abundance 
The trees are full of fruits, the rivers are flowing, and the hills are full of minerals, and the ocean's full of wealth. And this is all due to your glancing over them. So we find that there's a number of places where Prabhupada, where the Shastra, where Srila Prabhupada makes the point of material prosperity. I think that sometimes there's a, a misunderstanding that Krishna consciousness needs to be dependent on material poverty. And somebody asked me this recently, said, do you take a vow of poverty? Well, this, this concept that we have to live in poverty. I mean, there are many places where Prabhupada says you should take just the bare necessities of life. But here he's talking about a human society where people are flourishing. Of course, there are those who are supposed to live very austerely, who even if there's abundance and flourishing, are supposed to voluntarily live very simply. And those are who, what people are supposed to do that. And among the grahastas, the brahmins. Particularly the brahmins who live on charity. The, uh, generally, grahastas are not supposed to live on charity, but a Brahmin and grahasta can live on charity. So the brahmachari, the brahmacharis are supposed to give everything to the guru. They have no, they're not supposed to have any personal property. The vanaprastas and the sannyasis also live without personal property, without wealth. And the Brahmin and grahastas also can, if they choose. It's one alternative. They can live on charity, in which case they're supposed to both get charity and give charity. And ideally, such persons are supposed to not even keep for the next day. Right? Whatever they get, they use what they need that day, and then they give away. So they, they keep themselves in a, uh, in a poverty condition, even if they're receiving abundant wealth. They don't, they don't say, okay, now I've received abundant wealth. Let me, you know, generally people, if you get abundant wealth, you say, all right, let me build a big house, let me buy a new car. Let me, but the, those segments of society are not supposed to do that. They're supposed to continue to live simply. Therefore, you find that all societies used to be, now governments are taking this over, but used to be that the main way you gave charity was you gave to the church. And the church kept what they needed for their worship, and then they, they were the charitable givers in society. So it was like that in Vedic times also. But of course, that's a minority of the society. The minority of the society of the Brahmanas, they're a very small segment of society. Only the Brahmanas take sannyas. Only the Brahmanas and Satriyas take Vanaprastha. So you find the majority of the society are Vaishyas and Shudras with some Satriyas. And those people are meant to flourish. Because they're going, most of the people are not going to be willing to just live on the bare necessities of life and give away whatever they don't need that day. You know, the majority of people are simply not going to be willing to live like that. Uh, at Bhaktivedanta College in Radhadesh, they were thinking of creating a spiritual business degree. I mean, so many devotees now are getting degrees in business, you know that? Maybe not here, but it's becoming very popular. So they thought, all right, let's offer a business degree. So they were writing up some preliminary, I don't, I don't know if they're still planning on doing that. Anyway, they're writing up some preliminary papers, and one of them said, you know, learn how to live on the bare necessities of life. I said, you're not going to get anybody to go <laughs> You know, who's going to take a business degree? Not a brahmana. No, brahmana is going to take a business degree. Vaishas. 
the Vaishas are not going to be attracted to live on the bare necessities of life. That's not what's motivating. What's motivating the Vaishas is increasing their wealth. In fact, the Vaishas are supposed to be generating wealth not only for themselves, but for the whole society. They are the generators of wealth. That's where all the, all the wealth in the society comes from, the Vaishas. And if they're not interested in generating money, how are they going to generate wealth for the society? A Brahmin's not going to do it. If you say a Brahmin, okay, I want you to generate enough money to maintain all these, like, interested. Why should I do that? As soon as a Brahmin has what they need, they stop working. It's not inclined. The majority of people, though, they want to flourish. They don't want to just have, you know, three sets of clothes and two pairs of shoes and one old car. I mean, remember, you, you asked me to talk about the early days of ISKCON. So in the early days of ISKCON, we didn't have furniture. I was saying how ironic it is that now that I'm a Vanaprastha traveling preacher, wherever I stay, I'm given a bed. It's so weird. <laughs> you know, when I was a Grahasta, I hardly ever had a bed. We just put a sleeping bag on the floor. We didn't even always put a mat under the sleeping bag. We didn't have carpets. Put a sleeping bag on the floor. You know, we didn't have any chairs. I remember at one point we bought, you know those, those cheap chairs you use for outside? Those like plastic woven chairs? Mm-hmm. So at one point we had them in the house. And I remember my stepmother looking at them. She said, oh, early backyard. But most people, they want some furniture. Uh, they want nowadays people want you know a big flat screen monitor and <laughs> one sannyasi was telling me he said I don't have to travel with a projector because I stay at people's homes and all the devotees' homes I stay at they'll have some big widescreen TV monitor I can show them my stuff on that so people want to flourish they want to have they want to live in abundance that's natural for most people. And without that, the majority of people feel an anxiety. So here it says the natural law is that one can do that. We, we are not propagating, we as a Krishna consciousness movement are not propagating that the world live in scarcity and poverty. That's, that's not our philosophy. Not for people in general, and frankly not even for devotees in general. You know, there was a time in ISKCON that we did preach like that to devotees in general, but people couldn't maintain it. It's not, it's not the mentality of most people. And unfortunately, because we preach like that to devotees in general, many people just thought, well, if I want to have a nice house and I want to have a couch and I want to have a car, then I'm in life. Uh, but no, we find, we find this throughout the Shastra, throughout Prabhupada's instructions. He's saying you can have a, pro- a prosperous society. But then he says, okay, what is prosperity? What is real prosperity? I stayed last year uh, with a family in Slovenia who grow pretty much all their own food. They've been living on a raw food diet for 14 years. Mm-hmm. I've really been there. And they have this huge garden outside their house, and then they have some other property a little distance away where they grow their own food. And they're, they're living much, a much nicer life than most people. Food is so tasty. You just have fresh-picked organic produce right out of your garden. Or there's a lot of research been done on our eco-farm in Hungary. I'm sure many of you have been there, mm. to Krishna Valley. 
and I was at their ecological presentation last year. And there were a number of there's a number of research projects done by university professors and university students. And they showed that the devotees on the farm had a higher standard of living than most of the people in Hungary, even than most of the people in Europe. They had a higher standard of living. And they said that the people, most people in Europe, they had a lower standard of living than the devotees on the farm, but they were taking more than the earth could give. They were depleting the earth. And the devotees were taking less than the earth could give. So they were giving back to the earth, which also meant that there's a reserve. There's an emergency, there's a reserve. You know, standard of living is not just what the, how, much, how many things you have. It's how happy and peaceful you are. What's the use of a lot of things if you're miserable? What do we get the things for? Nobody gets things to have things. I mean, maybe somebody does. Some people just collect things just to collect things. But generally, we get things because we hope that they'll make us happy. We hope that they'll improve our relationships with other people. We hope that they'll improve our sense of security and our sense of happiness. But if they achieve the opposite, then what's the use of them? You know, we often hear, and Prahlad Maharaj says this, and we often hear Prabhupada making this point that our happiness and distress is already predestined, material happiness and distress. And what you find is if people try to artificially increase things, they don't necessarily artificially increase their happiness. I mean, maybe by hook or by crook you can get more money than you're destined, but then your amount of happiness goes down. And you just you see practically. I mean, I had one, one devotee I know who owned three houses and was in huge amount of debt. And he told us, I'll be 75 before I pay off my debt. And I said, Prabhu, what are you doing this for? He said, for my family. I said, when are you going to see your family? You're working 90 hours a week. Prabhupada tells the story of a, of a family he met in India where the man was going on the train at 6 in the morning, you know, and coming back at 10 o'clock at night. And at one point, his three-year-old child looked at him and said, Mommy, who's that man? And you see this especially in the Middle East. You see people working there who haven't seen their family in four years. So they can, you know, they're sending money home to their family. They don't even know their family. There's no relationship. And they're living in these labor camps. And Prabhupada says here that these, these modern industries, they squeeze out the vital energy of the human being. Just seeing people are getting more diseases, more men, more mental diseases. People, you know, have so many mental diseases now, and they're trying to deal with them through chemicals. Used to be, people have mental disease; they try to deal with it more through talk therapy. Now they're trying to deal with it more through pharmaceuticals. And you know, when people take these psychotropic drugs, a lot of it gets excreted in their urine. And the water treatment plants are not set up to filter out these drugs. So that means that a lot of the water that we're using for drinking and for cooking is filled with things like Prozac and Valium. Amazing, isn't it? So even, you know, even normally healthy people now are becoming affected by these sort of things. People are becoming in so much anxiety. So much anxiety. People can't even have normal relationships anymore. I mean, they're you meet somebody who's been married for 40 years, it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. You're, it's, it's, you're surprised. Yeah, right. If someone says, oh, we've been married for 40 years, you're like, wow. 
When I was a kid, that was normal. <laughs> For people to celebrate their 40, 50th wedding anniversary was just normal. Now it's extraordinary. Well, it's especially that, right? <laughs> That's also now become extraordinary. If people's children are their own children, it's extraordinary. You know, you're surprised. Oh, these are your own children, and you've been married for 40 years? You know? <laughs> if people are healthy, it's surprising. It's rare to find somebody who says, oh, your health is good your whole life. <laughs> Almost everybody has some sort of disease. So this is the result of our great you know, advancement of civilization. I mean, all of us, including myself, we're, we all tend to be attached, though, to these things, isn't it? We think about, how can I give up my cars, or you can't even give that up for a moment. <laughs> I saw a devotee once texting in the kirtan. Talk about inattentive chanting. But, you know, we become attached to all these accoutrements of modern society, and we wonder how we can live without them. You know, we visit the eco-farm in Hungary, and we feel scared. Oh, my God, you know hand-washing, no electricity, and how would I live? It, it's really nice when you go there because, because there's no electricity. And they could have electricity there with a windmill. They told me one good windmill would power the whole farm. They won't do it. They're intentionally not having... They have electricity in the temple building and in one of the offices. But because there's no electricity, guess what everybody does in the evening? They can't read much in the evening. Talk. Yeah, they don't talk much. Yeah. Well, they go to sleep early. <laughs> the idea of staying up really late isn't so much of an option. But they have bhajans. They chant. They come in the temple and they chant. There's no electricity. It's just candles. It's kind of hard to read. You know? They chant. But you don't see very many communities where the devotees come together every evening and have bhajans. And they do. And it's, it's really interesting. If you stay there for a few days, you know, when I stay there, using my computer is really difficult. I have to go all the way to the office and carry my computer up and downhill. So I'll tend to go a few days without using my computer just because it's so much trouble. And after a few days there, you, you realize, wow, I'm so much more peaceful. I'm so much more happy in this atmosphere. You know, it's I remember when I lived at Gitanagari, at, at first there was no electricity down by the cabin. And um, a couple was living there, Vamandeva and Indira. And she told me, wow, without electricity, it's so quiet. And I never thought about that. Electricity is so noisy. The refrigerator and this and that, always making some noise. And what to speak of, they've done research that all the electrical wires are giving out all sorts of... Right, which is, and our, our bodies are electrical. You know, our brains are all electrical. Our bodies are working on electricity. Who knows what it's doing to us? And all these radio waves and television waves going through our bodies all the time. All these things that we're not even aware of. All the, the chemicals seeping out into the air. I stayed at the Soho Temple recently, and they just painted. And even a month after the painting, there were still fumes coming from this paint into the room. So to squeeze out the vital energy of the human being, and, and not just through the pollution and the chemicals, but uh, just the whole lifestyle squeezes out your vital energy. Isn't it strange that with all these 
labor-saving devices that we seem to be working harder. People seem to be working more hours. And now they're bringing their work home. There's no separation between home and work anymore. You know, you have your mobile phone. I love not having a mobile phone. Why do I want somebody to be able to call me 24 hours a day? You know, you can never, and once somebody has a mobile, you expect that they're going to answer the phone. You know, you're always on call. You always have your work there. There's no time you feel you can relax. And in most places now, both husband and wife have to work. Uh, one devotee knows she just had a baby a month ago, and already she's back at work. So, squeezing out the vital energy. This is, we have to ask, are people, are people really happier, more peaceful, with better relationships than they were 30, 40 years ago? I don't think so. Although we're really proud of all of our advancements. Of course, Prabhupada was not opposed to the use of all machinery. In fact, in Nectar Devotion, he says, if things can be used in Krishna's service, we must use them. And there are advantages. I'm not saying that there are no advantages. Just like we're working on this curriculum project. And at somewhere at least 200 devotees have helped with this project. And they're all over the world. You know, I've got somebody doing the layout in, in Hawaii, and I've got somebody doing the artwork in Shanghai, and someone else doing the artwork in Auckland, and then people doing the translating in Russia, and someone else, you know. And I didn't need to have a building somewhere and fly everybody in and feed everybody, and deal with their interpersonal relationships, fix the plumbing, because we could do it all over the Internet. So basically, we've been able to manage an international project without a building, without a very big budget. Right? It's basically just a laptop and a good internet connection. So it has its advantages. I mean, definitely it has its advantages. The disadvantage is that sometimes I have to get on the internet at 2 o'clock in the morning to call somebody in another time zone. Right? And then you always have to have this machine with you. Anyway, we're not opposed. I mean, certainly Srila Prabhupada wanted his books done by computer, wanted us flew all over the world with airplanes, he wanted us to use modern technology to preach Krishna consciousness. And just like we're noting that American culture is spread all over the world, it's very interesting that almost wherever you go, people have adopted the dress and the, and the cultural mannerisms that have come from America. And how did that happen? Through the media through television and movies and radio. So we can certainly use the media to preach Krishna consciousness. I mean, that's a lot faster than if you had to walk and take, you know, sailboats or something to try to preach. So although we're not opposed to using these things, we see that a society based around these things is very exploited. And there's, um, there's one film a devotee gave me called Stuff, which you might have seen, mm-hmm. how that the real price of things that we buy is the exploitation of people. And it, it's pretty interesting. One, one of the things I'm, I've been looking at with doing these books is because all of the work to do these books has been donated. All the, everyone either donated their time, like we didn't pay any of the translators, we didn't pay any of the readers. 
And the mon money to pay artists came from donations, so people gave me $5,000, and I used that to pay the artists. So none of that money is reflected in the cost of the books. When we sell our books, none of the money that people will pay for those books is going to go for any of the writers or any of the artists or any of the layout persons or any of the, anybody who worked on the books. It's only going to be going to the printers who aren't donating their time. That would be nice for them, right? So it's only going to pay for, like, the paper and the printers and the box. And still the cost is high. It's still high. And I thought, how does anybody make money at anything? You know, if I had to pay everybody at market rates, how could I sell books at a price people would buy and still be able to pay everybody? I don't see how it's possible. So how are most people making a living out there? They're exploited. They have somebody that they're not paying what they're worth. And they're not providing health care to somebody. You know, somebody along the line is getting cheated. So that so that we can go in the shop and buy something for, you know, a reason what we consider a reasonable price. I mean somebody somewhere along the line is getting cheated, or in some case the environment is getting cheated. People aren't, just like we buy so many things in China, but in China there's wholesale pollution. I don't know if you've ever been to China. You can't see the sky, ever. There's no sky. It's amazing. There's just no sky. You know what it looks like in a really hazy day where it's just kind of all white fog? That's what it's like there all the time. There's pollution. You can't see the top of the buildings and there's no sky. Imagine people who live there don't even know what is the sky. And after a few days, I started having breathing trouble. I never had breathing trouble in my life. And I had to go to the hospital. And I said, yeah, you're getting sick from the pollution. So that's the cost. That's how we're getting things so cheaply, is that we're polluting a billion people in China. So Prabhupada talks about this here. Right? A few only can live lavishly by exploitation. So a few people are living nicely, and, and even those people are not living nicely. They're living lives full of anxiety and disease and so many things at the cost of others. So that's not prosperity. That is not actual prosperity. Prosperity means prosperity for everyone. Prosperity doesn't mean that there's people starving in Africa or there's people being polluted in China, but I'm living okay, so that's all right. Prosperity means for everyone, and the only way to have prosperity for everyone is to be dependent on the gifts of nature, to have a different kind of prosperity, to have a different kind of culture. Now, if you preach this way, a lot of people become disgusted. I mean, one of the hardest places it is to preach this way is in India. If you preach this way in India, people will say, oh, you want us to go back to village life. I was really, really surprised. Recently, I was in Mayapur, and the grahastas each have their own little plot of land, and they're growing their own organic food. And I said, oh, we must be growing a lot of organic food for the deities. They said, no. They said, the big areas that are being farmed on our own property in Mayapur are being farmed with chemical fertilizers, chemical pesticides, and that food is being sold. I said, why? They said, because the local Bengalis think it's Western superstition to farm organically. So I, I find in general that, you know, there's been so much Western propaganda in these third world countries. Don't be superstitious and backwards and village life. 
you know, live in the cities and have motor cars. And when we go and try to preach a simple life, people are generally not interested. I find that, that those of us who were brought up in Europe and in America, Australia, New Zealand, that we're much more open to Shua Prabhupada's instructions on simple life than people in India. Just a couple other points I want to make here. Um, some points I'm intentionally not discussing so much because we're going, this, this purple really ties into what we're going to talk about tonight. So I didn't want to talk about that too much this morning. And, and that is the fact that really what we should depend on is not even natural living but depending on Krishna. So that we're going to talk about tonight. So please don't think I'm ignoring that, that point. That, that we're not simply preaching live organically and live simply. Uh, the other point that Prabhupada makes really strongly here about natural living, and he also makes it in, the, in his lectures on this verse, is about being vegetarian. And he's giving this as one major example of how people are exploiting material nature. And it's... Of course, it's not even just that the animals are being killed, but how they're being treated. And uh, a few months ago, I, I watched the movie Food Incorporated, which if you haven't seen it, I really recommend that you watch that movie. It's a very, very heavy movie, how food is being produced in the Western world. And it, it talked about how even the vegetarian food is being produced with exploitation. Un- unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Uh, the big seed companies are forcing everyone to use their seeds, and their seeds are genetically modified, and people can't save the seeds, and we're dependent then on just one kind of seed. We're ruining the biodiversity. But what, what also really, I mean, that was very disturbing, but also just the way that these animals that are being raised for slaughter are being treated. I think once you, once you start slaughtering animals, it's very hard to have good human qualities. I mean, there's a proven psychological link between those who mistreat animals and those who are cruel in general. But, you know, it's pretty hard to say, well, I'm going to love my animal and take care of it, and then I'm going to kill it. Pretty difficult. I'm going to feed you and take care of you and be affectionate towards you and care about you, and then I'm going to kill you and sell your body for money. You know, how do you do that? If you're profiting off someone else's body... How can you care about that person? It's like there's also shown a connection, by the way, between uh, meat eating and violence towards women. You know, the same idea of exploiting. It's that because one sees the animal as as an object, one ceases to see the animal as a living being. This is just some object. Basically, the Anamoya platform. This is just an object for me to exploit. And so, therefore, these meat-eating companies, these slaughterhouses, their treatments of the animal become more and more and more cruel. I mean, they're so cruel that even the meat-eaters are recoiling at these things. Even people who don't want to be a vegetarian, they start thinking, well, I really don't want to eat some animal that was treated this way. I mean, they're talking about how they're, they're raising the chickens in darkness for their whole life. They never get to see the sun. You know, and they're wallowing in their own feces. It, it, it's beyond horrible. And even, I'm, even some of the people that are raising animals for slaughter are saying, we don't want to treat an animal like this. 
but they're being forced to do this by the big companies. It's very hard for them to make a living if they don't mistreat their animals. You know, because the people who are mistreating their animals, they're getting the animals fatter faster. You know, they're getting the animal ready for slaughter in 40 days instead of 90 days or something like that by these methods. And they no longer care. How does anybody feel? All they care about is how much money are we making? 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 And it creates a whole exploitive mentality in society. I mean, the exploitation of women also comes from seeing that women are just objects of enjoyment rather than people and feelings. And we forget that actually everything is people. The earth is a person. God is a person. Everyone has feelings. So these are, are symptoms of exploitation. And you know what? Nobody can be happy if they're exploited. It's impossible. You can't be happy if you're exploiting others. Maybe you can get some kind of feeling of power, but you can't have any happiness. Like Hiranyakashipu, he was exploiting the whole universe, and he had a lot of power. But it said he was always drunk, and he was always yelling at the demigods for no good reason. Both good symptoms of being an unhappy person. How do you know somebody's unhappy? They yell at everybody without any reason. And they're always taking intoxication. You don't become happy. So you can't become happy in, it when in an exploitive society, and you can't become happy if you're exploited. Well, we'll just say very briefly that it's really impossible to give up an exploitive mentality unless one is trying to love Krishna. You can't do it. You can't maintain it. No matter how much you might think, well, this other life is better, and I want to... It's the urge, to, well, I want to exploit more, and we'll come again. We'll come again. There, there's got to be, Paramjus Dandivartate, there's got to be a higher taste. Just trying for simple life and organic living and by itself, it, it's not enough to satisfy us. And we'll say, I want more and more and more and more and more, and then again you cross the line to being exploited. So just material prosperity without Krishna consciousness is not endurable. They, they have to go together. And we'll talk tonight about the mentality that one has. Uh, here Prabhupada makes this point. It's really, really nice to have this purport to me. What we need, therefore, is to be obedient to the laws of the Lord and achieve the perfection of human life by devotional service. <laughs> and talking about depending on Krishna. <coughs> depending on Krishna. And so Kunti, looking at this, looking at seeing that because Krishna is glancing at everything, it's full of prosperity, she desires that Krishna continue to glance at everything. So we should also desire the main kind of prosperity. The main kind of prosperity and flourishing is not pearls and silks and fresh-picked, organically grown, out-of-your-backyard tomatoes. Although those are really nice. And it's really nice to have a fresh-picked tomato out of your garden and a fresh-picked peach. And you don't know what food tastes like until you eat that kind of food. Hmm. It's a completely different thing. And to have silks and pearls, right? Prabhupada often talks about it. He, he says, the modern beautiful women are covered just in plastic ornament. But that's not the ultimate prosperity we're looking for. The ultimate prosperity and flourishing we're looking for is Krishna's grace upon us. I mean, Kunti's not only asking for Krishna to glance at the world and make the world prosper. There's descriptions of, of this sort of thing in uh, some of the Rasa Shastra of the Goswamis. 
uh, I think Krishna, I think uh, Kavi Karnapur in, uh, in Ananda Vrindavan Champur describes how as soon as Krishna glances at the trees in Vrindavan, they bloom. He looks at the tree, and it blooms. So this is what Kunti's talking about, that Krishna, because you're looking at everything, everything is, is flourishing. But we also want Krishna to look at us. Prabhupada, in commenting on this verse, said that we want Krishna to look at us. We want to flourish. The real prosperity is if we're full of, of spiritual life. That's our real wealth. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Premadana, says, Premadana Lina Vyarta Daridra Jivana. You see, we're talking about wealth. He said, without the wealth of prema, prema dana bina, without daridra jivana. You all know, all know what daridra means? Like, we talk about poor, jivana life. So a life without love is poor. I mean, even from a material point of view, a loveless life is a wretched life. <laughs> you know, if somebody has gold and jewels and organic peaches and nobody to love and nobody who loves them, like there was an old rock song, Don't You Want Somebody to Love? I mean, even without love, your life is empty. It's useless. It's a desert. Even Arjuna said that. He said, what's the use of winning this battle if I don't have anybody to share my opulences with? If I've got nobody to come and say, hey, see my new car? What's the point? <laughs> what's the point of having a nice new car if you can't show it off to anybody? Right? Isn't it? What woman wants to wear jewelry just to sit at home and look in the mirror? It's useless. Right? Most women don't have a husband who notices. That's what they want. Or your friend, at least your lady friends have got to notice if your husband doesn't notice. We want love. So that's the real wealth. And we really want Krishna to glance at us and fill us with love. Actually, Rukmini said that to Krishna. She said, my, the, my real happiness is in life is when you glance at me with love. So that's what we're looking for. You can't stop desires. You know, the reason the materialists cross this line into exploitation is they have desires. They're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with organic peaches and wool clothes and silk clothes. Crossing the line and exploiting so we also have unlimited desires. We're, we're not opposed to having unlimited desires for loving devotional service. We're not opposed to greed. Kamakrodas tatalobas. Of the three, greed is the worst. It's never satisfied. Lust can be satisfied. Anger can be satisfied. Greed can never be satisfied. I mean, lust and anger can only be satisfied temporarily, but greed can't be satisfied even temporarily. So we also want that kind of greed to increase our wealth more and more and more and more and more and more and more with Krishna's glance. That's our desire. And if we have that kind of prosperity, then whether or not we have pearls and jewels and gold is not so very interesting. This isn't. Why? If you've got, you know, billions of euros, one or two euros are not very interesting anymore. You already have them. So that's the real, that's the prosperity that we are looking for ultimately. So I did go to almost 9 o'clock, which I hope is all right. I didn't intend to. Yes? Yes, you have a question? Uh, uh, yeah, I have a question about uh, Brahma. You can see it before in Vedic times when there was Yajas and some species of They fish. give so much charity. So much cows, thousands and thousands and so much gold. And so how come 
Then they turn Brahmins would turn around and give it away. And then you think? Well, maybe not a minute later. Sometimes they would. That's why um, Arjuna is called Dhananjaya, conqueror of wealth. So when Yudhisthira was doing a sacrifice, they need, you know, you know, we put on a festival, you need a lot of money, right? So do a sacrifice, you need a lot of money, and they really, they really needed a lot of money because all the utensils, when uh, Maharaj Yudhisthira did the Rajasuryajagra, all the utensils were made of gold, solid gold. So where were they going to get all that money? So Krishna told Arjuna that there had been a sacrifice previously where the brahmanas had been given a lot of gold. And they just thought, what am I going to do with all this gold? And they just left it there. No Vaisha would do that. No, there's no Vaisha that would do that. If you give a Vaisha a lot of gold, they'd find a way to transport it. <laughs> they wouldn't say it's too heavy to carry. Brahma said, well, how are we going to carry all this gold? They just left it there. And Arjuna went and found it. Yeah, you give a Brahmin a thousands of cows, there's going to be thousands of cows. Give them away. You keep what he needs and give them away. Now, not all Brahmanas have to live like that. But a Brahmana who's dependent on charity should be living very, very simply. Anyone, anyone who's living on charity needs to live simply. Nobody wants to give charity to somebody who's living opulently. It's very unpalatable. Anyone who lives on charity. I probably say we should be very, very careful not to spend one, one penny on our sense gratification when we're living on charity. The householders who are not living on charity can use 50% of their wealth for their family. And they are allowed to have something for their sense gratification. If you want to do that, if you want to have some things for your sense gratification, then you have to be a householder who has an honest livelihood. That's allowed. That's not, not forbidden. Even that you should see as the gifts of the Lord. That's what Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati says that in Brahma Samhita 561 purport. But you keep, you're not supposed to have it both ways. You're not supposed to live on charity and live an opulent life. You have to choose. What if there is a temple which is very opulent, like it is, many temples, and then devotee says, who doesn't have money, we have to oh, we don't have money, we will give to very opulent. It's already very opulent. We have so much money, temple, and we don't have. So how will you, you know, you said if there is something opulent, it's the, you don't, we don't want to give. Again, the way it used to work, and this used to work not only, you know, you see it working even like the Catholic Church used to do this, is that you give your money to the religious centers and they redistribute it. That's what the, it's, also the temples and monasteries used to be hotels. Prabhupada talks about that, that when you would travel, instead of going to hotels and eating at restaurants, that the, this was one of the ways that the monasteries and the temples maintained themselves, is they had guest facilities. People stayed there in, their, in the guest facilities at the temple or the monastery, and this used to be true in Europe with the churches. When you traveled, you stayed at a monastery or, or a church, and then they would feed you and you give them a donation. So they provide different services for the community. But it, w it used to be that the, the churches and the temples within the community, 
they would take care of feeding the poor. Sometimes the Ksatriyas would do it directly. Sometimes the Ksatriyas would give charity directly, but often the Ksatriyas would give charity to the Brahmanas, and then the Brahmanas would distribute them. It's a very good idea to have Brahmanas distribute charity and to distribute charity on the local level, rather than to have government do it from a highly centralized location. What's happening now that government is distributing charity from a centralized location? Hmm? A lot of corruption. Incredible corruption. A lot of cheating. A lot of people getting charity who should not be getting charity. And it's destroying the moral fiber of a lot of the people in the world. I mean, it's, it's a proven fact that government welfare system is contributing to illegitimate children and divorce. Everybody knows that. They don't know what to do about it, but everybody knows it, that there's a direct link. Well, if you get a, a girl pregnant and you know that she can just go get money from the government, why should you maintain it? You've taken away a lot of the male psychology of why he takes care of a woman. Man takes care of a woman because she, he needs, he's needed. He has to protect her, he has to be here. You take, take that away from him. He doesn't need to anymore. Somebody else will do it. And you're going to be irresponsible. But again, everybody knows this. This is a proven sociological fact. But if you have the Brahmins giving in charity on a local level where they know people, they're not going to do that. If charity is, just, is given and distributed locally and you know the people and you know who's getting charity and you know what their needs are, and then the Brahmins have a different mentality. The Brahmins have a mentality of giving and they're not as liable to corruption. They're more in the mode of goodness. So that's the way things are supposed to be done. Therefore, Brahmanas have six occupations, and one of them is getting charity and giving in charity. So they get charity, and then they give it out in the society. I mean, the Ksatriyas are going to directly fund things like building roads and building wells and things like that. But that was originally the function. So the Brahmanas were given a huge amount of wealth, which they then redistributed in the society. They didn't keep much for themselves. They just kept what they needed. The Brahmanas could also do other occupations. Brahmanas could be physicians and astrologers. and well, Even then, or teachers, even then they weren't getting a salary, but it was a little different. They were, getting, they were living off whatever charitable donations they got for their work. They didn't have a set. They, they taught for free or they prescribed for free, but then people gave them. And sometimes you'd have rich Brahmanas like that. There's some examples in the Shastra of rich Brahmanas. Once I discussed with Bhakti Krishna Maharaj about the maintenance of Brahmanas in South India and in the uh, North India, it was different. In South India, mostly they have their land and they give to everything that's from Brahmanas and they give to Vaisha Shudras and they get some money from them. And the North, you know, it was different before because in the North, uh, a king, you know, Brahmana, he came to the shop, supermarket, to Walmart or somewhere, whatever he purchased for him, the bill is going to king. Oh. And king is, uh, and then king looks if there is too much spices, then he says this is not brahmana. If there is many sugar, he says okay, I will pay this. this is brahmana. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. And then, uh, and then brahmana, he doesn't need to get salary. He doesn't need to because he just came to shop, took whatever he needs. Okay, but now in this society, it's completely different. So how he, somebody can live in such a way if he doesn't, if he should be completely like you know, can depend completely on Krishna. We'll talk about that tonight. Tonight. And what is with the, you say that as soon as as soon as you have a salary, immediately you're compromised. Let's just say that the moment you live on a salary, 
your truthfulness is compromised. Immediately. You cannot live on a salary and be truthful. Impossible. Impossible. Therefore, the Brahmin Satriyas and Vaishyas did not live on salaries. Immediately you're compromised. You want to think about why? If I'm getting a fixed amount of money, then I'm going to tend to have fixed expenses. As soon as I have fixed expenses, then I'm dependent on getting a fixed amount of money. As soon as I'm dependent on getting a fixed amount of money from a certain source, then I'm no longer going to be truthful about that source or with that source or to that source. Can't be. If I'm truthful, I may lose my source of income and I've got fixed expenses. If I've got fixed expenses, I can't risk losing my source of income. Now, if you don't get a salary, if you don't get a salary, you can't really live with fixed expenses. If you have no fixed income, how can you live with fixed expenses? You can't. But then you're free. So how do you do that? Well, the Satris do it by taxing. You don't know how much money you're going to get from taxes. It's not a fixed amount. If you want to get more tax money, the society has to be more prosperous. And the Kshatriyas want more tax money, so they want the society to prosper. It's motivating them to have a prosperous society. Of course, it's, you know, it's motivating the modern governments, but they're trying to make society prosper in, a, in an exploitive way. Baba says Kshatriya can also be a landlord. If you're collecting rent, that's another kind of satriya income. The Vaishas are getting their wealth from real wealth. A real Vaisha gets wealth from real wealth, from land, from animals, from water. A lot of Vaishas today are not dealing in genuine wealth. You know that. <laughs> I gave a talk to these investment bankers at Ernst Young in London, and I was talking about how a, a Vaisha should only produce genuine wealth, and they all looked at me. Because they're, they're all producing false wealth. It's not, it's not real. It's not real. Otherwise, how can there be an economic collapse and all of a sudden you're worth half what you were worth yesterday? It's not real wealth. Yeah, I was, I was adding up my, my currency and my son who takes care of the accounts for the project says, Macho, we, we've lost some money here. It's unaccounted for, and we, we account for everything. So I was like, how could we have lost this? And we realized what happened is the money devalued. Mm-hmm. I had euros and pounds, and they all of a sudden they weren't worth anything anymore. Which is nice for our books, because our books are being produced in London, and I've been worried all along, how are people in America and Europe going to buy them? And I'm realizing now the pound is worth nothing. <laughs> it's not going yeah, to be that much of a problem anymore. But yeah, if you have 20 pounds, all of a sudden, you know, 20 pounds was worth $40, now 20 pounds is worth maybe less than that even. It's like 1.3. So that's not real wealth. Do you know that the value of gold in terms of what you can buy with it has remained constant, it's never changed? But the, the, the actual value of gold has remained constant. So the value of gold in terms of the euro is going to be changing, but the actual value of gold remains constant. It's real wealth. 
the actual value of food remains constant. It may change according to the, the currency, but the actual value is the same. So that's real wealth. So the vices are supposed to generate real wealth. They're not supposed to be dependent on the salary. And the brahmanas, they're supposed to study, teach, or they can have an occupation of getting and receiving charity. That's a kind of occupation. Right? Don't people have that as their occupation? People work for the Red Cross or whatever. They get and receive charity. Or their occupation is to worship the deity or to teach others how to worship the deity, and then they depend on Krishna. Everybody's dependent on Krishna. But the brahmanas is right here. But we're going to talk about that tonight. So it's, it's mostly a mentality, but it's hard to have that mentality if you're getting a salary. Very difficult. Almost impossible. It's possible, but very, 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 very difficult for someone who's getting a salary to have that mentality. It's possible. Is that all right for now? For now. For now. We'll discuss that later. Anything else? We could say briefly that we're, you know, you, you can't just pick up something from an ideal society and transplant it into modern society. It doesn't work. You know, and, and, and part of what we have, I, part of what we have to say is that there's a lot of things in our life that are not ideal. And just the way it is. There's a lot of things that are not ideal. And if you see that, it makes it a lot easier to deal with them. You say, this part of my life's not ideal. I'm having to live on a salary. Well, if I have to live on a salary, that means my truthfulness is going to be somewhat compromised. And at least be aware of that. At least be aware of what choices we're making and what kind of situation we're in. Say, okay, I have this situation in my life because of modern society. and All right, well, that's, it's going to have such and such an effect. Kind of like... You know, if you're sick and the only doctor you can go to is a modern Western allopathic doctor, you can't go to a good Ayurvedic doctor maybe because there aren't any. Let's just say, okay? And the doctor gives you some medicine and says, and you have a really serious disease and you can't just not take medicines. The doctor gives you some medicine and says, okay, I'm giving you this medicine, but a side effect of this medicine is that you're going to feel sleepy or a side effect of this medicine is you're going to feel nauseated. So at least you know when you feel nauseated or you feel sleepy, at least you know, well, that's the price I'm paying for taking this medicine. And then you have to decide if you want to take, pay that price or not. So I think it's a lot like that. You know, we're, we're having to make adjustments because of the, of the circumstances that we're in, and at least you, you should know, don't be blind, at least know this is the cost I'm paying. Okay, I'm using a computer, I'm using a iPhone, I'm driving a car, I'm getting a salary. What's that costing me? What's that doing to me? What's that doing to me as a person? How is it affecting my life? Am I, am I willing to take that side effect and, and be aware of that? Does that also make sense? And that can help you make some adjustment. At least you know. Making adjustments. All right, so I'm, I'm working for you and you're paying me a salary, which means that I can't be honest either in thinking about you or in talking to you directly. So then at least I know that. I know, I mean, you get the money you have to get from the monthly salary. 
which adjustment he can get because he need to get some the adjustment is that you realize that by getting a monthly salary it's it's compromised your ability to be honest and what do you think of this man that's another thing that's a whole other topic how do you use money wherever you get it from that's a, that's a different topic but the first thing is you realize that by by getting a salary i have compromised my honesty am i willing to do that am i willing to do that maybe i am if i am i am but then i i know that that's what i'm paying and then when it comes up you know when i feel like saying something to whoever's giving me the salary and i notice that i don't then i stop and say okay this is a choice i'm making it makes it a little easier you stop and say okay well all right i'm the reason you realize the reason that you're not saying anything the reason i'm not saying anything is this is how i'm being maintained that's why i'm not saying anything or doing anything and this is a choice that i've made and why have i made that choice maybe i've made made that choice so i can live in a western city for preaching and i've decided that it's a worthwhile choice So if I've decided that I'm going to live in in Paris for preaching and in order to live in Paris well, like I know devotees who live in like well, I should probably should have to say cuz it's recorded. Anyway, I know of devotees who live in a place where Krishna consciousness is illegal. And they've gone there to preach Krishna consciousness. But in order to stay there, they had to have an occupation. They couldn't get a visa to stay in the country and preach unless they had a job. So they got a job. Now their job because they're they're getting a their salary job it forces them to be compromised in some way there's a number of compromises that they have to make because they have this job but without the job they couldn't stay there and preach so they weigh it and they say okay in in one sense i'm compromising some of my ideals in order to because i'm getting this salary and because i have this job but i've decided that the compromises of my ideals are worth it in order to be in the city and preach do you understand what i'm saying So mostly just to be aware of it to be aware okay this is the price i'm paying do i really want to pay this price why am i paying this price what other things is it getting me that this price is worth it and you might look at it and say hey it's not worth it i don't want to pay this price anymore as far as what you spend the money on as i said if you're getting if you're living totally on charity you've got to be extremely careful how you spend it If you're if you're living at an at an honest livelihood that's not charity then you should spend 50% of your money for spiritual purposes and 50% of your money for family maintenance. You should still be careful how you spend money. It's all Krishna's money, but it's not the same. If you're a householder and you have a job and you you know you buy a second car that you don't really need, nobody's going to criticize you. It's not it's not the same. Does that make sense? There's some allowance if your wife really wants 30 saris and you have a job and you know you can do that but if you're living on charity and your wife has 30 saris it's a little weird especially if they're all you know top quality silk with embroidery on them that's a little strange you know if you have a job and you want to buy all this fancy imported food and you know that's not fine but if you're living on charity and you do that and again it's a little strange it's not so It's not very respectable. So the the responsibilities that you have are a little different when you're living just on charity. 
That's always Christian's money. I mean, you should never waste it. Does that make sense? And Bhaktivinoda Thakura in um, Bhakti Loka talks about this, these differences between how the rules are applied to renunciate and how they're applied to grahastas. And Prabhupada often also makes this distinction between the spending of money when you're getting charity and the spending of money when you're not. I mean, if uh, we were at a program at a very, very wealthy person's house in London a couple months ago, and I thought we were going into an apartment building. It was all his personal house, right in the middle of London. And he had two apartment buildings with a courtyard in between. As his personal residence, right in the center of London. No, but the guy's a multi-billionaire. And nobody's going to criticize, oh, why are you living in such a big house? It's a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of his wealth. And he's spending millions of pounds on devotional projects. You know, nobody's. But if, he was, if that was a sannyasi who was living on charity, you know, <laughs> or even a grahasta living on charity, that would be criminal. I mean, that's even against the laws of the state to do that kind of thing. Well, many devotees try that. You know, we have we have certainly um, many devotees who do that. They have. I mean, my son in California runs a, a prasadam business, and probably ninety percent of the employees are devotees. And not only are they employed by other devotees, but they're employed in a preaching business. That's you find that all over where devotees try to start businesses. I mean, it's, there's some difficulty with employing other devotees. It's like employing family members, and you run into the difficulties of a family business. The benefits and the difficulties of a family business has two sides. But um, I see more and more devotees try to do that so they can employ other devotees. And devotees can work with other devotees and work in an atmosphere where it's normal to practice to follow codice and things like that. Where they they might be closed for business on Janmashtami. Yeah, like when my son's business, they'll often work on uh, government holidays, and I'll say, "How come you're open on a government holiday?" He said, "But Mata, we're closed on Janmashtami." So that, that's also that. Yeah, part of this discussion is being honest about your position, which is a whole other class. But you know, not artificially trying to pretend you're something that you're not. To just say, okay, I want 30 saris. Then, then get a job. <laughs> That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. You know, if you want gold and pearls and 40 saris and you want a five-bedroom house, and it's fine, do that. 
and make it, you know, generate enough wealth that you're also able to build temples and build schools and print books and, and you know, we happen to need people like that in the Hare Krishna movement. We'd, we'd like to have people who wanted to generate a lot of money, wouldn't we? Don't we want people who like Krishna and want to generate a lot of money? <laughs> no, it's not. But part of that's because of our preaching. Part of that's because we, we often discourage people that we say if you want to be serious about Krishna consciousness, then you shouldn't want to generate a lot of money. Bhakti Chiruswami is, is shifting. He's one of the leaders who's shifting this preaching. And he's saying to people, if you want to make a lot of money, then go do it. And do it for Krishna. Because people's natures will assert themselves anyway, as Krishna says, third chapter, 18th chapter. And what we see is if we artificially try to push everybody to live simply, that some people just won't do it anyway. They'll go out and make a lot of money anyway. And then they feel that, well, now I'm in Maya, and then they'll separate themselves from Krishna. They're not using the money in Krishna's service. We don't see the money. Right. We could use a lot of money in the Hare Krishna movement. Anybody not want to have a lot of money in the Hare Krishna well, that means there's got to be people who are devotees of Krishna and who want to generate a lot of money and want to have prosperity, right? And those, the people who want to do that probably want to live in nice houses and drive a nice car. You don't, you don't usually find the people who are in, you know, the people who just want to have three dotis and live on japatis and rice and dal, also want to generate billions of pounds for building temples and festivals and stuff. It doesn't go together. Does that make sense? Because of the, sometimes we need some, we want to do so many things and then we want to copy-paste things from, you know, from Varnashram system and everything and then so many problems came. We, we don't do the implementation, so we just want to do copy-paste how was before and how was now. And then so many, especially because of the preaching of in Iskon, uh, devotees feel uh, bad if they want to have 30 saris, if they want to make money, because they, they think they are less, uh, how do you say, they are not so, they are like uh, low quality uh, devotees, because the you know, preaching was initially should, should be very advanced, no money, nothing, if you are, you know, want 30 saris, because of the preaching, what we heard, then devotees feel that we are very low class, better if we go from the society. Exactly. That's right. We're starting to change that, but not really. Mm. Anyway, as I say, this is a whole other class. This is a class on follow your nature. You know, this that's another hour. Yeah, on, only nature, first class, normal was a completely renounced Brahmana. Everything else was low class, but devotees were just living and because they cannot. Well, they I cannot mean, look, it is true that an airplane is better than a bicycle. It's true, but maybe you don't have an airplane. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. You know, maybe I shouldn't say this being recorded, but Prabhupada does say a male body is better for Krishna consciousness than a female body. So what should I do? <laughs> Jump in the Ganga and hope I get a male body next life? <laughs> you know, okay. Let me take, take what you have. What you have, you have. Why hanker for somebody else's nature? Yeah. Stupid. If you hanker for somebody else's nature, all you get is another body, so you can have that nature. All right, so maybe if I was born as a South Indian male Brahmana, but do I want to be born as a South Indian male Brahmana? Then I can get to do that. Okay, 
Krishna says, fine. That's what you want, that's what you get. So a lot of this is just, I, I, I don't know why we, we haven't preached so much on the third and 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says the choices are, do your nature for me or do it for Maya. So that's the choice. The choice is not, do you want your nature or do you want somebody else's nature? <laughs> that's not the choice. The choice is, do you want to use your nature for me or do you want to use your no- nature for Maya? And he says, if you use your nature for me, then you'll get everything, and if you use it for Maya, you'll be defeated in everything. So you figure out what's my nature. Varna nature is consistent throughout life. Ashram nature changes over life. So what's my nature in general, and what's my nature now? And then you, you, it's basically like figuring out what kind of vehicle you're driving. You know, am I driving a skateboard? Am I driving a bicycle? Am I driving a boat? Am I driving a car? Am I driving a truck? Am I driving a plane? What am I driving? And then you want to have the instructions manual for your vehicle. There's no use in following the instructions manual for somebody else's vehicle. That's just dumb. And if you envy somebody else's vehicle, then you just get that next life. Great. And then you find that Every endeavor is covered with some fault, and every vehicle has some problem, and then you've got to deal with the problems of that vehicle, and then you envy somebody else's vehicle, and it keeps on going, life after life after life after life after life. You know? <laughs> we were just at the publisher, and uh, it was really funny. He said, so we're not, we're because we're calling our books, Dr. Best Learn to Read, because that's my name, Dr. Best. That's actually my name. So then he said, so we're going to make sure we put on the cover of the box, not just Dr. Best, but Dr. Edith Best. He said, because especially selling this in India, when they see that it's an American name, they'll be much more likely to buy it. So, ah, there's some advantage to having an American book name. It gives me an advantage. Now, overall, it's a disadvantage, but it gives me a few advantages. Right? So you just see what are the advantages in the nature that I have. The disadvantages, don't do those things. In the areas of weakness, just don't do those things. In the area of strength, do those things. What does it matter? It just matters that you get to your destination. It doesn't matter. You know, you say, well, the guy in the airplane will go faster. Maybe. But if I try to, to you know, pretend my bicycle's an airplane, I'll just crash. I won't get there faster. So maybe the guy in the airplane can go faster. Okay. And then they did lots of pious activities and other lives I didn't do. Okay. Oh, well. So what? So? So you have an advantage over me in this area, and you have an advantage over me in this area, and I have an advantage over you in this area. So what? Who cares? Doesn't matter. Just go back to Godhead. Whatever your nature is, be honest. It'll come out anyway. 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 You'll do it anyway. At least God says that, and I believe him. So just be honest. If you're a grahasta, then get married, for God's sake. You know. If you're a vaisha, then make money. If you're a renunciate, then be a renunciate. Don't pretend to be a householder if you're a renunciate. Don't pretend to be a renunciate if you're a householder. And don't pretend to be a brahmin if you're a vaisha. Just do it. And do it for Krishna. Who cares? His life only lasts this long anyway. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, 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 it doesn't matter. And you're not going to become more Krishna conscious by pretending to be somebody else. 
That's what Arjuna thought. He thought, I'll be more Krishna conscious by pretending to be a Brahmin. And Krishna said, no, you won't. You'll be more Krishna conscious by being a Kshatriya for me. Say, oh, but that occupation is better. They just get to study all day. and They just get to, you know. But if that's not your nature, you won't be more Krishna conscious that way because while you're studying, you'll be thinking about, do I have enough money in the bank? You won't be able to read the words. I don't have enough saris in my closet. <laughs> you'll be disturbed. Is that okay? You guys are going to kill me. It's <laughs> never going to invite me back to Karlovac again, you know? So I should end here, right? <laughs> we have, today we have time. Tomorrow we don't have time for questions. Just, just go a little bit more. I have to proofread two books today. So I'm going to have to make sure I do that. Yes, Rubo. Yeah, go ahead. Today's society is... Uh, making us so external that we are trying to <coughs> do something. We are we have some wishes. We are trying to be somebody. We are we are uh, what's the vision? <coughs> Identify with that. So how to find our nature? It's so it's uh, to see even if what is our nature. What do you feel enlivened by? What kind of work? Don't get too specific. What kind of things enliven you? What kind of things make you feel alive that you look forward to doing? And what kind of things make you tired? You know? You have to think about what enlivens you. Do you really like creative work? Do you like big picture work? Do you like detail work? Do you like dealing with people? Do you like dealing with things? Do you like just being a team player? Do you like managing projects? You know, are you more interested in security or freedom? That kind of thing. You know, are you willing to forget about security for freedom? Or are you willing to forget about freedom for security? How much do you, do you need to have control over your own stuff? So you look at these kind of things. How am I happiest? Am I happiest when I have a lot of security and I have a lot of control over my own stuff? Or am I happiest when I have a lot of freedom? Even if it means I don't have a lot of security or a lot of control over my own stuff. How am I happiest? Do, do I need a member of the opposite sex in order to feel energized? Oh my god, I really did burn my sari and the incense. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> the sari is now ruined. Right. So, you know, you. It, it's <laughs> I thought we really tried to put that out of the... I guess by the time we moved it, it was too late. you got to ask yourself that, you know? Do I like to do... Like, I was a treasurer in two temples. I was a treasurer in Chicago, and I was a treasurer in Boston. I hate doing detail work. I can't stand it. It drives me crazy. You know, and if, if anything was a penny off, I had to go through all, everything all over again to find the mistakes and re-add all the numbers and re-add all the numbers and re-add all the numbers. And I can do that stuff. It drives me bananas. You know, after I've gone through something twice, I want to be done with it. Whereas there's other people who love going through stuff over and over and over and 
hold it, and hold it. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I want to finish something and go on to something new, then I'm done with it. How to, if you are doing something that aligns you and it's giving you some, some of your wrong uh, motives, some of your analysis, how to do that then? Yeah, I think you should just do things that you're miserable at. Sounds like a really good idea. It says that somewhere in the scripture, right? That you should do things that you're bad at and that you're really miserable at. Can you find me the quote, please? What does it say all over the scripture? You should do things according to your nature. Does it or does it not? Does God himself say that? Does he or does he not? He does. Is there anywhere, please, any place where Krishna or the great devotees say that you should intentionally do things you're bad at or that you don't like? Well, there's parts you don't like even of the things that you're good at. But generally not. So this was Arjuna's question, wasn't it? Isn't this question you're asking, wasn't that Arjuna's question? Wasn't that his prior question? He said, how can I fight when if I fight, I'll be involved with all these sins and I'll have the wrong mentality and... So what did Krishna say? He said, okay, yeah, you're right. Don't fight. He said, no, fight with a different mentality. Change your mentality. Okay? That's our whole process of sadhana bhakti, how to change your mentality. By the way, it won't be any easier to change your mentality if you do things that are not with your nature. In fact, it'll be harder. Can you say something about this? Do the, do the things is not part of our nature, especially this society is pushing the leaders, managers, and then some simple devotees want to do this, it is not their nature, and then... I don't know, I just really like the Bhagavad Gita. I'm kind of a simple devotee. Krishna says, better to do your own duties imperfectly than someone else's duty perfectly, or because to follow another's path is dangerous. But this tendency to doing the other nature is there. What tendency? In the devotees, they do something which is not their nature. Says well, I think there's a general tendency in this world to think that someone else's position is better, and that's the main reason we take birth after yeah. birth after 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 birth. Yeah. Because, you know, I have a particular nature because of my past desires and my past activities, but once I get it, I don't like it. Yeah. And then I think, oh, no, I should have gotten another nature. It, we do that with things, right? You buy a phone, and you, 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 know, you did your research, and you bought your phone, and then once you bought your phone, you said, oh, it's not exactly what I wanted. And then you see somebody else who has a better one, and you say, oh, I want that one. And then you sell the one you have, and you get the other one. And then you get the other one, and you, oh, I like this, I like this. Oh, but I don't like this. Oh, I'll get another one. That's what we're doing in this world. Oh, I think I'd like to have curly hair. Oh, I think I'd like to be a woman. Oh, I think I'd like to be a tiger. 
I think I'd like to be a leader. I want to try to be a leader. All I do is get criticized. Awesome. Or I could just be a little background person and just be a follower. Oh, you get to do that. You get to try it. Get to taste all the ice cream flavors. <laughs> I have already been eating, you know, mango ice cream. Let's try vanilla. Okay, let's try strawberry. Oh, yeah, let's try this one. Let's try the chocolate on the top. Sprinkles. Keep trying. So if, yeah, we have a tendency like that. We have a tendency to be dissatisfied with our nature and to envy someone else's nature, and that takes us birth after birth after birth. Give it up. Forget about it. Every endeavor is covered with some fault. You're not going to find happiness in any nature in this world. It was so funny when I went to Trinidad. So funny. Everybody there wanted to go to New York. <laughs> and I said, everyone in New York wants to go to the Caribbean. <laughs> you know? Stop it. Go to the heavenly planets, go to the hellish planets, go to the animal species. Go to the Whatever nature you have, you have. Okay, you got it. All right. Use it for Krishna. Finish. Who cares what nature you have? Doesn't matter. It's got good things about it and bad things about it. It's got things that make it easy to be Krishna conscious. It's got every one of us has a nature that has certain things about it that make it really easy for us to be Krishna conscious, and certain things about it that make it really hard for us to be Krishna conscious. Oh well. So what? Just use it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. What you think when you go back to Gada, then you, they're going to talk about, did you get here in a bicycle or in a boat? I don't know. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Oh, he came in an airplane and you only came in a bicycle? Maybe it's more glorious if you go on the bicycle, right? Well, he has an airplane. Of course, he went back to Canada. He had an airplane. <laughs> wow, you went back to Canada in a bicycle. Just like we have some devotees who come from, you know, tribal backgrounds. You know, not many. Not some. More glorious. You can think of it that way. You like is that, but is that okay? And as managers, please, as managers, try to engage people according to their nature. Of course, there is, everyone has emergency duties, like Priyavata had to do emergency duties. Everybody has, there's, everyone has emergency duties. Generally, emergency shouldn't be constant. And there's going to be parts of even the work that's according to our nature that we don't like. That's always there. You know, you may like playing with your baby, but you don't like changing your nappies. I mean, that's... You may like cooking, and you don't like washing the pots. I mean, that's... You like taking care of your deities, but you don't like the fact that now your sorry's burnt up to a hole. <laughs> so there's always parts of it you don't like. It's not that because you're doing work that's in your nature, you're going to like every part of it. But the work in general should be something that's in line. Does that make sense? I should say that sometimes the only way you can find out what your nature is is by training. Sometimes you can't really tell if you like something or you're good at something until you get proper training in it. So if you haven't had proper training in something, you may think you don't like it because you don't know how to do it well. 
So ideally, the guru can ascertain a person's nature by the time they're about 12 or 14, and then give them the training that brings out their nature. That's the ideal situation. What modern education does is try to give you a little bit of training in everything, so hopefully they'll hit it. It doesn't work very well. But if, if you haven't found something like that, then you can try getting some training in different things and see what resonates with you. I think you had a question. Yes. Yeah. As far as doing what's needed, I see that in two levels. One is what's needed means emergency work. But please keep emergency work to emergencies. If you're doing emergency work 365 days a year, there's something radically wrong. And you'll become tired and you'll even become ill eventually if you do work. Think about work according. And the other thing is what's needed is you know how many things are needed in the world? You can definitely do what's needed to advance the Krishna consciousness movement and still work according to your nature. Prabhupada said Krishna consciousness is not narrow or stereotyped. There's plenty of things that are needed. Unlimited things that are needed to preach Krishna consciousness. So it's not that just by doing what's needed that you have to give up your nature. Um, in a general way, you, everybody, we all have enough experience. Think of some time you did something that you were enlightened about. You looked forward to doing it. You woke up in the morning and said, I can't wait to do that. You didn't want to go to sleep. You didn't want to quit. You didn't want to quit for prasadam even. I'm sure all of us have done something like that. We've all done something where we didn't want to stop. We looked forward to it. That gives you some idea of what your nature is. Think about what, kind of, what, what did that thing involve. I, I give you one example for myself, and then I'll give you some criteria how you can decide. So I was asked several years ago to come to Denmark and work on the ISKCON Interactive CD, DVD. And I was writing the text for it. And what that involved was I had to do a lot of research. Then I had to take the information, and, put, and it was in a certain format on the computer. So I had to fit the information into a little box. It gave me appreciation for museums and zoos where they have this little tiny piece of, you know, this little box where they give all the information about what is a tiger and you got to fit it in the box. Mm. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I was working 14-hour days. I, 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 I didn't get tired. I didn't feel like I wanted to take a nap during the day. I didn't want to stop working on it. I really looked forward to it. I thought, well, what did it involve? It involved research. It involved solving puzzles. puzzles. Basically, I was solving puzzles all day long, figuring out things. Okay, how do I say what I want to say that will fit in this little box, which was extremely difficult, very, very difficult to do. 
And then it was all about Krishna. You know, I was getting to write stuff about Prabhupada's life and about the philosophy and about Mayapur Dham. I was getting, it was, it was all stuff where I was reading and researching philosophy and Krishna stuff, but it was also research and puzzle solving. And I loved it. So I could see, okay, I like solving puzzles. I like researching, I like solving puzzles, I like philosophy. It wasn't, okay, I like writing the text for a DVD about Mayapur. But I looked at what were the components that were involved. in Or like, I love preaching like this. What do I like about it? Well, I really like feeling that I'm Krishna's instrument. Really, 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 really like that. It's, that's my ice cream. Not the ice cream you wanted to serve me yesterday. I don't care about that. I really, I just love feeling that I'm connected with Krishna and that, that Krishna's using me to connect with people. I, there's nothing I like better than that. That's just, that's top of the top of the top of the top of the top. I don't care how I'm doing it, I love it. I want to be anywhere where I can, I really feel that Krishna's using me to help people. And it, there's just nothing I like better than that. And I, I like—I really like giving people practical tools for their lives. I, I really enjoy making Krishna consciousness real and practical and sensible, and gives you something you can take away and use. Because I had to think: Why do I like doing this? What What is the thing about it that I like? What's the rasa in it? Krishna says he's a taste of water. He's a taste of everything. There's a taste you're getting. What kind of taste do you like? We each have our own taste, just like some people like broccoli and some people don't. We have certain, even in our in the spiritual world, you know, we'll have certain favorite foods. You know that, right? And Krishna will. And what does Krishna like to do for his devotees? He likes to give them their favorite foods. You know that, don't you? When Mother Yasoda goes in the kitchen, Krishna takes off his plate, the favorite foods of all the devotees in the room, and puts them on their plate. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is explaining he's serving to the devotees their favorite foods. So you're talking about feeding your false ego. No, you should think this is Krishna's gift to me. Krishna's giving me my favorite foods. So in a general way, you can ask, I mean, there's, there's a number of, um, of different systems for finding out what your nature is. But it's certain questions that you ask. I mean, there's, there's tests you can take, things like that. But you just ask yourself. I would start with, what have I ever done in my life that I felt enlivened by? That it energized me. That I forgot about everything else. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about all the other things I had to do and all the places I had to go and all the people I had to meet. I just loved doing this stuff. Why? And then think about what, what, what was the taste in it? Like you eat a really nice preparation that you really like and then you ask, when I was just with my son, I made some... Uh, Salad dressing that he really liked. So he wrote me, give, what was in the salad dressing? Break it up into the components. So I think, okay, there's this thing I really enjoyed. What, what, what about it? What was my taste that I was getting? What was spices were in it? What about it do I really enjoy? And then you can figure out some of your nature. Okay, I really like helping people, or I really like being part of a team, or I really like doing physical work. 
you know, do you like doing mental work? Do you like doing emotional work? Do you like doing physical work? Do you like doing work that's fairly easy, that you already really know how to do, and you say, okay, I know I'm already good at this, or do you really like things that are a challenge, and you have to learn new things? Some people really like learning new things. Some people really don't like learning new things. Do you like doing things that are risky and edgy? You know, would you want to go preach in Albania? Does the idea of preaching in Albania excite you or scare you? You know, oh my God, they're going to preach in Albania. I don't want to go there. I might get arrested. Or do you say, yes, let's go. I might get arrested. (laughs) Yeah. Are you a cautious person or are you a risk taker person? You know, cautious people, like there's this devotee at the manor who hasn't left the property more than three times in 40 years. And he's done the same service every day for 40 years. So we glorify him for that. But we also glorify Indra Swami, who doesn't know where he's going tomorrow. Right? So, you know, what enlivens you? Not knowing where you're going tomorrow or knowing exactly what you're going to do tomorrow? Which, which gives you energy? So you look at those kind of things. Don't, don't look so more at the external, but the, the basis underneath it. Do you want somebody else managing projects who tells you what to do and just says, okay, this is what I want you to do, and you follow this thing, and it's one, two, three, and everything's laid out for you, and just follow the plan? Or do you want to have your own plan? How much do you want to be self-directed? You know, how good of an employee are you? Do you like getting a regular salary? Do you like knowing how much money you're going to get and when you're going to get it? Does that make you peaceful? Or if you get a regular salary, do you feel like you've got chains on? Does that all make sense to you? You Do you like working with the the dirt? Do you like working with plants and dirt? Does it just irritate you? Do you like working with animals? Or if you're out among the animals, are you just like thinking, oh, am I going to step on the manure? <laughs> I don't want to pet the cow right now because there's no sink around. You know? Or do you just love putting on your, what do they call them here, wellies? Love putting on your boots and going out there in the muck and, I think we've all, and if you if you haven't had enough life experience to get to answer that question, then you probably need some more training or some experience, and you try different things, which you're supposed to do when you're young, but you know sometimes that doesn't work out. Does that make sense? Are you motivated by money? You know, some people are really motivated by money. I know one devotee friend that thinks about everything in terms of money. Everything, everything is money. You know, or are you the other sort of person who's unmotivated by money? Some people are unmotivated by money. If you tell me you're going to pay me for something, all of a sudden I don't want to do it anymore. You just sort of peculiar, I suppose. And other people, if you're not willing to pay them, then they're not interested in doing it anymore. Why should I do this if it's not giving me any money? They have to think of it in terms of money somehow or other. You know, like this is what he was telling me. Well, playing with my child actually contributes wealth to society. I mean, the reason raising children is, is creating wealth for society is because, you know, look, 
I have generated at least 10 times as much wealth as my parents spend on me. So if I raise a good child, that child will be creating wealth for society. And therefore, the time spent with my child is just as valuable as the time spent on work. And that's how he thinks. And I'm listening and thinking, wow, that sounds like a foreign language to me. I don't, I don't relate to it. But that's, that's a different kind of nature. Does that make sense? You know, what... Are you enlivened by getting up in front of it? Like Prabhupada talked about, uh, he said, if we speak to 10,000 people, that's more ananda than if we're only speaking to 10 people. For some people, speaking to 10,000 people is like poison. I don't want to get up in front of the stage to speak to one person. Or like I know some devotees who are uh, dancers. And they told me, they said, when I get up on stage and I'm, I'm dancing and portraying Krishna's Leela through dance, I feel alive. And after, after dancing for 10 minutes, I have triple energy and I actually forget my body and I forget everything and I'm just absorbed in the Leela and I'm dancing. Nobody else believes you. <laughs> <laughs> I will try to my nature. Yeah, we're going to have five more minutes and then I'm quitting. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, you were saying many different things. and uh, uh, I did say that it would be an hour's class to talk about this. Is, is it possible for you? No, what do you think? Is it possible for devotee to use always his nature? Uh, uh, always? No. No. To maintain the family with this nature, yes. But because we see that in the most of devotees they yes. do. Uh, so you think it's possible? Is that because when I was in Chopati they yes. I have, <laughs> I have I have many different uh, teachers. One of them they teach me counselor system, and he says I told him that I don't like to work in this day for salary and to work especially for karmic and this this and that. And then he says that Maharaj told them, and then most they do in Chopati that in Kali Yuga all of them mostly everybody shudra. And uh, Gihasta Maharaj told him should have this uh, monthly salary because there were so many problems in the past in the ISKCON and there, there were so many fried and there was execution against ISKCON. That is probably very good advice for most people. Yeah. So they told me this, but I was very, I said, no, no, no. That is probably excellent advice for the majority of people, just like you're saying. The majority of people need that. Yeah, monthly get some. Monthly. Otherwise, they're not peaceful. To live without a monthly income. A monthly fixed income, you have to be a higher class person. Otherwise, you'll just be full of anxiety. You have to be a Satriya Vaishya or Brahmana to live without a fixed income. You have to have that mentality, otherwise, you can't do it. Drive you crazy. Yeah, well, you'll do something. The nature will reassert itself. That's what Krishna says. If you, if you don't use your nature properly, it will assert itself anyway. So you'll look, if, you're, if security is more important to you than freedom, you'll look for security. Remember that this can change too. There's one, the Varna nature is constant, the ashram nature is going to change. In order to change from a grahasta to a vanaprasta, you have to shift somewhat from security to freedom. So that may change at a certain point. 
But if a person values freedom over security, then they're Brahmin or Satriya or Vaishya. A Vaishya and Satriya find energy from risk. They're energized by risk. They find the other life boring. I just go to work, I do the same thing, and I get the paycheck. It's not what they want to do. If you're Satya or Vaisha, your your work on some Brahminical work, your work is full of variety. You don't just do the same thing every day. And you don't know what you're gonna get. You don't know how much wheat's gonna grow in the field. You don't know how much milk the cow's gonna give. And you don't know how many taxes you're gonna collect. I don't know. And that's part of the the thrill of it. That's the taste. But maybe you don't like that taste. You know? Like, I don't like chilies. My son-in-law eats them for dessert. <laughs> we all have a different taste. Can you use your nature? Yes! We'll have that quote tonight, but I'll just mention it. But it will be tonight, so it'll be repeated. Sorry about that. <laughs> In the story of McGrory, Prabhupada says, Krishna is maintaining everyone and what you do for your occupation is just a matter of your choice. So what you get, you're going to get. You're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get, you're going to get. It's already, your amount of happiness and distress is already there. It's already there. You just choose how you want to get it. So choose how you want to get it. And if if you're so afraid, then you're a shudra. then you really are a sutra. If you say, oh, I can't do that. I can't, I can't do the things that I really love and figure that Krishna will maintain me as long as it's an honest livelihood. Then that right there is good evidence that you're a sutra. You need to work for someone else who pays your regular salary. If you look at that and go, will Krishna actually maintain me? It's got to be an honest livelihood, and Krishna's not going to maintain you for sitting around staring at the wall. I mean, he maintained Srivas for not having any livelihood, but that's, you know, that story? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chaitanya Mahaprabhu goes and he says, So, what are you doing to maintain your family? Which is evidence that generally you should do an honest livelihood. And Srivas Sakura says, I have the one, two, three policy. He said, you know, if no food comes after three days, then I'll jump in the Ganga. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, don't worry, Lakshmi may have to beg, but you'll always have food. <laughs> but generally, and in, this, uh, in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's instructions to Gopinath Patanayaka also, and in Krishna's instructions to the kings that he freed from the imprisonment of Jarasandhar, and I'm sure many other places do, the instruction is that you do an honest livelihood. Everybody has to have an honest livelihood. Everybody has to have an honest livelihood. Even in one sense, the brahmacharis and sannyasis have an honest livelihood. Krishna says no one can maintain their physical body without work. Everyone has to do some kind of work, and it should be work that's according to the shastra and honest and according to your nature, and then if you do that, Krishna will maintain you. And he'll maintain you according to what he thinks is best for you and or according to your destiny. And you know what? Krishna's going to maintain you according to how he thinks is best for you and according to your destiny, no matter what you do. Just like I said, I had that money and it lost its value. Interesting way of Krishna taking away money. Huh? 
I mean, I can think of many instances where I got money and somehow or other it got taken away. I wasn't destined to have it. And I can think of instances where money just came. Hasn't that happened to all of you? Don't things just come to you? And don't things just go? Doesn't that happen? Work hard, work honestly, work according to your nature, and you'll get what you need. If you don't get what you need, that's okay too. And we'll talk about that more tonight. Then you're happy. And if you think, then you're not happy. I am the doer. I am maintaining myself. No, you're not. So this is our, our simple formula, which again we'll talk about a lot more tonight. Everybody, you have to maintain your physical body with work. Everybody has to do some work. We're not meant to be lazy. Yes, that can be done. There was that Abaduta who was living like a python and just lying down and food walked into his mouth. Yes, I know about that. That's not genuinely what we're advised to do. If you're at that level of trust in Krishna, you can do that. And if that's your duty. But I, I don't think that so much Prabhupada would really want us to do that. How do the devotees maintain themselves? They go out in the woods and lie on the ground and open their mouths. You know. <laughs> I don't think it would be pleasing to our spiritual master. So, you know, we... We, haven't, we have honest work to do. We work hard. We do work that's according to our nature. And Krishna provides for us. Or not. As he likes. That's his business. That's not my business. That's his problem. That's not my problem. It's not my problem. My problem is figure out what my nature is and use that for Krishna's service with full enthusiasm in a way that's according to the Shastra, that's honest, that I'm not cheating anybody, that I'm not exploiting anybody. That's my, that's my position. What I get, what I don't get. I got this nice sari. You know, he just took it away. Hare Krishna. And I'm going to have to wear this for the next month until I can go get another one. What do you do? You know? That's where it is. You can take away, you can give. Sometimes Krishna gives me so many saris I can't carry them in my suitcase and I just have to give them all away. And sometimes he takes away the few that I have. Probably says Krishna has ten hands. If he wants to give, he gives you so much you can't even hold it. And if he wants to take away, you can't hold on to it. We don't have to calculate. I want to have this and this and this. I want to have... Again, I'm going to talk about this tonight. I want to have this level of sense gratification. This is the level I want to have. Oh, by the way, that doesn't work. This is the level I want to have. And in order to have this level of sense gratification, I have to have this level of income. In order to have this level of income, I have to do this kind of work. That's not reality. That's not true. You can't determine what level of sense gratification you're going to have. That's been determined by higher authorities according to our past karma. Don't forget it. And then you're always frustrated trying to get to that level of sense gratification. Does that help at all? Yeah. And if you can't do that, if you look at that and go, oh my God, I can't just like depend on Krishna and do honest work according to my nature, then that right there tells you you're a shooter. Yeah, it's awesome. You cannot generalize. 
There's no everybody should. Well, there's everybody should love Krishna. There's a few everybody shoulds. Everybody should love Krishna, and we say everyone should chant 16 rounds, follow the four related principles. Everybody should offer their food to Krishna. Everybody should study Prabhupada's books. How you study Prabhupada's books is individual. We have a short list of everybody shoulds. It's a very short list. We're talking about very specific things, like chanting 16 rounds. Then we have a longer list of everybody should principles. Everybody should work according to their nature. That's a principle. Everybody should dedicate the results of their work to Krishna. Everyone should dedicate their work to Krishna. Now, what work that is and how you dedicate that to Krishna, that becomes varied. Mm. The devotees mostly, they will not agree with you that uh, they should give 50% to, for, only for them. With me? Yeah, they will say. They won't agree with me? That's not coming from me. Yeah, I know. I didn't make yeah, that. I know, but they will say it's, it's a different uh, time, different uh, you know, environment, so we cannot do this. They're mostly That's because they're starting with what level of sense gratification do I want? That's the problem. As if I can, de- as if I can determine what level of sense gratification I get in this life. Can any of us here control what level of sense gratification you get? If you can't, please tell me how to do it. I'd like to figure it out. I can't. So that that's saying I'm going to start with what level of sense gratification. I'm doomed to frustration. Do honest work according to my nature. Whatever I get, I get. And I use at least half of my wealth for preaching Krishna consciousness and for serving Krishna. Now, my wealth might not be cash. Some of us here, our main wealth is our time. Our wealth is also, our wealth is, is our cash, our wealth is our time, our wealth is our, the space we have, our talents. And using for Krishna doesn't necessarily mean giving that money to somebody else also. Although I wouldn't mind if everyone here gave half their money for my book project. <laughs> but that doesn't, that's not, that's not what it means necessarily. You know, it can mean that you start a temple in your house. You start a preaching program in your house. It can mean that, you know, what you're spending on your own deities. Kolovich's Shridhar used half of his wealth to worship the Ganga. He was, it wasn't he was giving it to traveling sannyasis. He was using it to buy ghee wicks and incense to worship Ganga. The money you spend on the spiritual books that you buy. How, how much of your life, how much of your time, how much of your wealth, how much of your home is given to Krishna? At least half. Don't you give more than half of your time and your energy? And your is it that hard? Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> what if you feel that you give too much? <laughs> One who is temperate in their habits of eating, sleeping, working, and recreation can mitigate all pains by practice of the yoga system. So, one of the the saddest experiences I had 
was meeting with some devotees who had stopped working for a devotee business and were working for non-devotees. And I said, why? And they said, because when we work for non-devotees, we can be with our families on the weekend. And we have enough time to read Prabhupada's books. We have enough time to go to the festivals at the temple. Whereas when I work for a devotee business, they think that we become their slaves and that we're available 24-7. It was one of the saddest things I ever heard. It should be that if you work for a devotee concern, a devotee business or devotee project, that the leaders of that project want you to have good sadhana, want you to have a stable, happy family life, want you to have good health. I mean, even if you're very materialistic and totally profit-motivated, unless you have an ongoing unlimited supply of slaves, you want your employees to be healthy and happy because then they'll stay with your company and they'll be productive. So even if you're a gross, exploitive materialist, right? You're going to be a lot more likely to get work out of your employees if you don't work them to death. Working people to death, that's like the Nazis in the concentration camp. You know, you feed your concentration camp prisoners just enough to stay alive, and you work them till they die, and then you go capture some more people from their homes and feed them just enough to keep them alive and work them till they die. But other than, you know, Nazi concentration camps, if you want to run a good business and you want employees to really give their heart and soul to the business, you give them vacations. You make sure they have time with their family. You make sure they have time to be healthy. Right? That's just good business sense. So, you know, we ought to do that for our devotees. It should be that working for a devotee company means that kind of stuff. So there's, there's, there's two problems with employing. I wasn't going to talk about this. There's two problems with devotee businesses, one from the employer side and one from the employee side. The problems employers have with devotee business is the devotee saying, oh, my Guru Maharaj is in town, see ya. I'm going, to, I'm going for five days. Oh, what about our work schedule? What about all the orders? What about people who place the orders and we promise to fulfill the orders within 24 hours? Oh, well, my Guru Maharaj is in town, bye. Kartik, I'm going to India. But Prabhu, it's a codice. I can't come into work on a codice. You know, so you've got that kind of thing that the employers have to put up with. It's a really big problem. And then you have the problem the employees have to put up with, with the employer saying, but this is a devotee business. We're devotees. This is a service, Prabhu. <laughs> Don't you have a service attitude? Of course I'm paying you only one-tenth what you'd get paid outside, but this is a service. We're preaching. Yes, I know you don't even remember your kids' names anymore, but this is a service. <laughs> You're supposed to dedicate your heart and soul. So that's, that's, a, that's the problem. And it's not even good business sense. I mean, it's not even good profit-making business sense. So if you, if you want to be in the Hare Krishna movement for the long term, then make sure you take care of your health, make sure you take care of your human relationships, make sure you do some fun things in Krishna consciousness. 
Prabhupada says three kinds of duties, emergency duties, desire duties, and ordinary duties. So ordinary duties is duties according to your nature that you do on a regular basis. Emergency, we all know what emergency is. You just do anything and everything because it's needed, but that should be sometimes. And then desired activities. Desired activities, I think of like in the, in the outside world, they call them hobbies. You know, what do you like to do? It's not your regular work. Maybe you like memorizing verses. Maybe you like growing flowers. Maybe you like writing poems. Whatever you like to do. It's undesired activities. You're doing Krishna service. You got to have some of those. You can't live without fun. You can't live without fun. We're pleasure-seeking beings. Try to live without fun. You'll burn out, and then you'll start going to the movies. No, you can't. It doesn't work. And that's not what de- devoting everything to Krishna means. Devoting everything to Krishna means doesn't mean that there's no fun. It doesn't mean you don't have any hobby. It doesn't, doesn't mean you never talk to your family. Then you just burn out. And then we say, oh, that guy was so sincere. Where is he? You know, so if you, if you really want to stay for the long haul, that's part of what you need to do. Make sure you're balanced. Those who are temperate in their habits of eating, sleeping, working, and recreation can mitigate all pains by practice of the yoga system. One cannot be a yogi if he eats too much, eats too little, sleeps too much, does not sleep enough. That's part of your service. Part of your service is taking in your vehicle for regular maintenance. And we have a, we have a, a mental vehicle, emotional vehicle, and physical vehicle. It's got to function. So it's part of the you know part of our individual duty to do that, and then if you're responsible for other people to make sure that they do that, and make it all in relationship to Krishna. Why not? Not that your recreation has to not be in relation to Krishna. Mm-hmm. You can have fun in relation to Krishna. Why not? You can grow flowers for Krishna. You can write poems for Krishna. Right? Got to have some fun things like that. Emergency desired and, and ordinary duties, Prophet says. Jagya plus. Well, that's like Prabhupada would sometimes just sit down and play the harmonium and sing a bhajan. He didn't say, I gotta be translating all the time. He just stopped what he was doing and have a bhajan. You need to do that too. We're 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 people. We're, this is meant to be a very personal, alive, individualistic philosophy. Our philosophy is that we're people. We're living eternally, living, and we're eternally individuals, and that our highest. We talk about self-realization. We want to express ourselves who we are. All right? Is that okay? And now I am going to stop. Already. <laughs> this was not my intention. No. It really was not my intention. Some people are probably going, oh my God, when is she going to be quiet? <laughs> They're wondering how they can leave politely. <laughs> <laughs>